We're in Second Peter. Uh, we'll be there the rest of the summer, and uh, we're going to go all the way through verses 4, and we will be in verses 1 through 4 again this Sunday and next Sunday and then the next Sunday. I hope we'll move on after the 11th, but uh, this is such a full and wonderful passage. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to read just the first four verses. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence, to which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you have met us as we have echoed back to you words of scripture and praise and thanksgiving. And we need you. We need to hear from you. We need you in our lives. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for perseverance in our hearts and lives so that we can persevere until the day we're fully living lives where Jesus is formed in us. Father, now order our thoughts and our priorities. Bring us to a place where our ears can hear and our hearts can respond to you and to your word and to what you want to say to us. Make us hearers of this word. Help the poor preacher who stands before these people somehow manage to say and be used of you to communicate the truth that we'll need in our hearts and our lives to be you've called us to be. And may of all, above all else, we pray that Jesus would be glorified, that even today some might enter into their new life with him as they put their trust and faith in him, as they center their life in him, as they begin their walk with him. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. These first few sermons, I'm not trying to complicate uh, this text of scriptures, but I am taking, I suppose, a little bit different approach than we normally take as we uh, work through the words of God. I really want us to understand these uh, wonderful verses because I think they're so important, so practical, so needed for how we have to live every day. Uh, this is a strong message from, from the Lord. Um, there's things here that will absolutely and must continually transform how we live, whether we're old or young, whether we're new to this life in Christ, or whether we're continuing on after a long time in it. Um, there's a sense in which last week's sermon and this week's sermon and even next week's sermon might be considered layers uh, that I hope will help you understand and see um, what the Lord is speaking to us about. 
last week we took just the broad theme that is in these verses about the uh, absolute expectation that as Christians we're not just justified at a point in the past and now live sort of in the hope so that we got this fire insurance and it'll get us to heaven, but that we live a life that's to be continually saved, continually transformed in our sanctification. And that normal pattern of growth and maturity and advancement is expected. It is the only norm for New Testament Christians, for believers in Christ. There, there's simply no other way to look at that. So uh, we talked about that, that what he prays for, for these believers, that they will have a multiplication of God's grace and peace in their life. Now this morning, I want us to continue with that. We're going to go again out to other scriptures to give us a picture of what he's saying to us here. And what I particularly want you to note this morning is that he has spoken of some things that are very, very important. He says we've obtained a faith of equal standing with our with ours, he says, you obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there is a, uh, um, a righteousness, an issue of righteousness that is very important. Um, and it's important that we understand what he means by righteousness. And I think often we do not. And this is an area of confusion that I hope we can um, maybe get a little clear in our mind. Then this this righteousness and so many other things he promises here, the connecting point we're going to discover all the way through it is, has to do with the knowledge of God. He says you will get this, this, this growing grace and multiplication of God's grace and peace, these things that are at the heart of the Christian life, by a knowledge of God. He'll say it later when he gets to verse 3. He'll talk about how uh, all things are granted to us by this knowledge of God. What in the world do we mean by this knowledge of God? What exactly is that implying? And then you'll notice that he makes some, some pretty grand statements, that he, he grants to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then I think speaking of the same things, he says in verse 4, these things come to us as precious and very valuable, very wonderful promises of God. What does he mean by that and how are we to take that? We uh, said last week that this idea that we're all to grow and mature in Christ is a norm throughout the Bible, that we ought to examine ourselves and make sure that that is taking place, that there's an expectation of that. And we said that often these pictures come to us in agricultural terms so that the Christian who is living right and growing is like someone attached to the vine, which is Jesus, and we're bearing fruit. In a number of places in the scriptures, it's described the Christian life, and sometimes the people of God as a whole are described as a tree. And the key for these trees in the scriptures, the ones that do not face judgment, the ones that, that please God or that where they ought to be are trees that are bearing fruit. Well, one of those famous verses about that is found in the very first psalm. And it is the first psalm that I want us to turn our minds and heart to this morning because I think Psalm 1 and getting that clear in our minds will help us understand in a very fresh way what he's getting at in many of these same points here in Second Peter. In Psalm 1, verse 3, he talks about the man who's God's man, who's the righteous man, who's the blessed man. He says he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Now, that's quite a statement. That's quite a promise. And quite honestly, you could take that verse and understand how many of our dear Christian friends 
Many of them who we would associate with a focus and an emphasis on what we might call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel would take that verse as a, as a really wonderful verse to, to express what they think comes to the Christian life. A tree planted by streams of water yields its fruit in its season, leaf does not wither, prosperity. And you see how those line up with Peter's message here in First Peter, or in Second Peter chapter 1. He has granted to us all things, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And what he gives us is a precious and very great promises. That sounds like health, prosperity, wealth for people who love God. And of course, there are many Christians who really clamp down on this, make this the heart of their message, and go so far. Some would say that if you're sick, then all sicknesses can be overcome, and you can get well no matter what if you just take God's promises, and, and that if you have poverty, it's, it should be long-lasting. It should be quickly removed by the promises of God. And, and essentially, if you, you're walking with the Lord and the richness of what He's got for you, and you live in all this, and then life even now is happily ever after just about every day. The Lord's, your life will be free from a lot of the slings and arrows and bad things that come to other people. Now, quite honestly, I may be pushing that too hard for some people. I don't think I'm pushing it too hard for some. That's what they seem to say. But I don't know how you live, if you really believe that in its fullness, how any informed Christian could believe that that's the way real life really is. It would require you to live in a, a pretend world. It would require you to live with an immature understanding. It's, it means living in a world that's cut off from reality. I can think of many wonderful, faithful, godly Christians, people of great faith, but I can tell you their, their experiences are often full of difficulty and trials and troubles and unexpected twists and turns. We, uh, Bob and I had a grandson this week. Great job, Bob. Me too. Huh? And uh, it's a happy moment when grandchildren come into the world. But I wasn't there. Then fortunately was. But uh, even though I wasn't there, I know it wasn't all peaches and creams getting that child here. I undoubtedly was pain and sorrow and agony. And I thank the Lord that I was in this part of Florida and not even close to where it happened. Uh, <laughs> Many wonderful believers in our church have gone to be with the Lord. God's promised grace for our dying times. I don't worry about that too much. I try to. When I do worry about it, I try to take it to the Lord. And I don't know what my story will be when the end comes. But I know He'll give grace for that need when it comes. On the other hand, let's be honest about it. There are a few of us die in our sleep or we die very suddenly and the heavens open. And, but for a whole lot of wonderful Christians, those final things, that end time is not pretty. It's certainly not easy. It's not necessarily pain-free. It's hard. It's not a fairy tale experience. And then we read Psalm 1-3 and it's so categorical. It would be like these prosperous, leafy, fruitful, always better and better trees. No wonder folks who, who, who buy into what I would call the prosperity gospel pick it up and quote these words. The whole first psalm begins with the word blessed. 
Now, the word blessed is often translated happy, but it's, it also can be translated to be envied is the man. It is to live a life that is envious, uh, an, an envied life by other people, not to cause them to sin in envy, but it's the kind of life that other people would like to have. So the blessed man is described here in the first part of Psalm 1, and then people who are not blessed, that is, they are wicked people, are described in the second half. And so that's, when you think of that psalm, first three verses, story of the blessed man, the righteous man, last part, the wicked man, what happens to them, real simple, right? But Psalm 1 is not so simple. Now, the simplicity is, first psalm seems to say there are two ways, two routes, two options for how you live life. The first half is one route, the happy life. There's a great deal of happiness and joy in this psalm, that first half. Happy for those who are righteous. But then, of course, the other half, the other option, not so happy. It all gets summed up in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so it says there's two ways, two options, and two options only. Now, is that a realistic way to look at life? Is that a realistic way to look at people that you know? Don't most of us imagine? Don't most of us want? Don't most of us actually think there's got to be some third ways in there, some, some gradation in there somehow? I mean, I know a lot of people who, who many of them would say, I don't want to say no to God, but I don't want to say yes to him, at least not yes too enthusiastically, like, you know, get all caught up in this whole thing. I don't want to make too much of it. Surely there's a middle way. Yet Psalm 1 seems to say, no, there's just two ways. There's the way of righteousness, there's the way of wickedness. And the authority for this idea of this binary way of, of categorizing people and, and, and folks, this is, not, this is not anchored in Psalm 1. The real anchor for this, the real certainty of this, this is the way Jesus talked. This is the way he looked at life. This is the way he looked at people. Many people, even people who aren't Christians, admire the Sermon on the Mount, but they may not have noticed how that psalm ends. Very binary, very either or. He says... There's a broad way, and there's a narrow way to live life. Psalm 1.6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are two ways. And then he says, at the end of this sermon, there's a broad way and a narrow way. And then he says not only that, but he says there are good trees and there are bad trees. And then he says there are two houses some people are like a house built on a rock, and everybody else are building their house on sand. Either are black or white, take your choice. You know the last category, Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall. By the way, that's not a picture of prosperity, easy life, winds blowing and floods and everything else. But the point is, when it's all done, it is founded on the rock, and it stands. The other category, 
that house built on the sand, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Same storm comes, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. But there's only two choices. And, of course, we've been reminded this week that that's not just a children's story. It's a shocking, disturbing story. We've been seeing a terrible tragedy down in Miami. Those people went to bed asleep, and that building they lived in for years and years collapsed on them. Who knows how many are dead yet? But the point here is that there's two ways, two terms, two categories, righteous or wicked. Can you live in a world like that? Can you, can you relate to that? How, what do you do with that? I'm just thinking about it personally this morning. I live in a, a, a lovely neighborhood. Got to know a lot of people in my neighborhood. They're from all kinds of backgrounds. Can you think of your neighbors in terms of some are righteous and some are wicked? That's it. There are people in my neighborhood who are civic-minded. They would do almost anything to help you if you ask them. They see a problem in the neighborhood. They would step up to try to bring people together and do all kinds of things. And I certainly don't know the whole story about all of them by any means, but a whole lot of them, I'm pretty certain, are not churchgoers. They're effective. They're hard workers. Some of them are very educated. All of them have some things that are interesting about them. I find politically I agree with many of them about politics. I don't agree about everything. Some of them just love their dogs, for instance. I don't know what they're talking about on that one. But but I do know this, that many of them seem there's no indication and indeed pretty good evidence that they have no interest in spiritual matters. Do I call them wicked? Could I call them righteous? So what is a righteous person? Well, Psalm 1 tells us, verse 2, the righteous person is the one who delights in his law. By the word law, we mean instruction, teaching. Who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law, on the words of God, the teaching of God, the instruction of God, he meditates day and night. That is, the Bible is their their, their bread, their the whole of their life. They, they, they center their thinking. They form their worldview. It's all for their Lord. It's their ultimate authority. This book and hearing God speak to His Spirit in, in, in times like this, in, in times of personal study, in times of ordering their family, this is, this is what their life is about. They delight in the Word of God. They love Him. And that last verse of the psalm says, the Lord knows their way of the righteous. He delights in them too. It's a two-way relationship. So there's a kind of care, a protection, and intimacy that the Lord has with them. Now, I have many neighbors, good neighbors, nice people, polite people. Some of them, I think, better people than I am in a lot of measures. But none of those words I've just said would describe them. So how it is it? Righteous or wicked? Don't you find it difficult to think that way? It's not just neighbors, it's co-workers, it's people you meet and doing your job, it's family members. It's hard to think that way unless we do it in biblical terms. Unless we pay really close attention to what the Bible means by these words righteous and the words wicked. First of all, righteous and wicked, we hear them and most of us think in terms of ethics. 
who thinks of good and bad. We think of maybe nice and not so nice. We think of uh, upstanding citizens and we think of criminals. But those words, righteous and wicked, is used here. So I think it's used in First, Second Peter 1, 1 is not a term about ethics. I remind you, the primary writer, author of the Psalms, if you know his story, was, shall we say, very often, or at least too often, ethically challenged in a way that was shocking to us. Now, when Psalm 1 speaks of righteousness and wickedness, it is not talking in terms of ethics primarily. It is first and foremost talking to us in terms of relationship. And that idea that righteousness and wickedness has something to do with relationship is the key to the gospel. It's the key to the whole message of the Bible. And if you think of what what both the Old and the New Testament declare are the great commandments, the first and foremost commandments to be kept, that becomes rather obvious. You remember what Jesus said were the great commandments, what, what the Old Testament says are the great commandments? The second one, of course, has to do with relationships with your neighbors. Love your neighbors. And the first one, the preeminent one, has to do with loving God. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God is looking for people who are godly in the sense that they seek after him rather than just trying to be good people. You know all kinds of people, and they are really are working hard to be good people as they imagine it. But in the beginning, the very start, the creator of the universe said that people made in his image were made for a relationship with him, and whatever goodness we would have would flow out of that. And quite honestly, goodness and people trying to be good just doesn't work, and the world won't work if that's how you understand it. So a righteous person is the one who seeks above all else to know the one who made him or her. The wicked are those who live in God's world without a thought of God, or if they do think of him, they will only think of him in terms as they have imagined him to be. They have no interest in what he's revealed himself to be. They're willing to receive all of his blessings, but prefer to live the vast majority of their life as though he does not exist. And you may discover that some of those very nice, polite people will become a bit antagonistic if you begin to suggest to them but they need to give consideration for the place of the living God in their heart and their life. Oh, you're one of those people who take the Bible real literally. or You know, we have Christian ethics. We, I, I, I agree with a lot Jesus said. I just don't, I'm not going to mess with that church stuff and Bible stuff and prayer stuff. And I'm not one of those religious nut jobs. And you push it a little bit and you will find often a pretty strong reaction. The Bible's saying something very important to us. In practical terms, people who have no time for God, and by the way, if you've noticed, there's a lot of people who have no time for God. Just one little place you see it, but you see it on every Sunday morning. There's not enough churches in this town to hold all the people that ought to be worshiping him every Sunday morning, but people don't have time for that. It's not that important to them. There's so many other things that, that are so much bigger in their life, and so... And of course, there's people who come to church on Sunday morning, and they do it for whatever their reason, but... The rest of the week, they have no time for Jesus either. So, There are many people who take that label, but they are, in fact, also the wicked described in Psalm 1, and they will perish. And it's not just individuals, it's what happens to nations. Nations come to a tipping point where they predominantly become a community and a nation and a people who have no time for God, and once that happens, it's not long before they desire not to give Him any place in their life or their society 
People and nations are never standing still. They're moving towards God, away from them. And if they're not moving towards him, there's not long until an enmity and a revulsion of the things of God grows more and more obvious. I believe we're in a nation that is very much like that until we come to the point that we almost openly declare ourselves the enemies of God. We come to want to eradicate every thought of him, everything that we can trace to him. We want to have no place in our life. We eventually come to hate those who would dare to stand and say that he's important and Lord and King of all. and We ought to trust him and follow him. And with that follows eventually the most appalling wickedness of the darkest kind. This is the uncomfortable truth about where wickedness ultimately leads. Jesus said it like this, whoever is not with me is against me. This is binary. So you see, Psalm 1 is not primarily a matter of good or bad. It's a matter of godly or not godly. Those who are with God are not with God. Now you know this. If you know the gospel, if you've heard it proclaimed, you know that when it decides who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't, it's not a matter of who's good and does the most good things versus those who do the worst bad things. It doesn't come down to, oh, you've done good things and you've done bad things. The good, you've got enough good here, you get to heaven. Too many bad things. It doesn't work that way, does it? You know that, I hope. And how could it, how could that really work if that was the way? Because, by, by the way, most of your neighbors think that's the way it works. Most of them out there think that when they stand, they're going to give an account of their life. They're hoping they got, I got good stuff over this stack, and I hope it outweighs the bad stuff in this stack. Most of your neighbors and friends and business associates think exactly that way. But how would that work? How could it work? So some people get in, but they barely get in. Boy, when it's measured, you know, if that's it, there's just a little bit enough to get them across the line. They get in, but someone else who's very close to them, but they're, oh, they're not quite good enough. They, just that much difference, but, you know, whatever the line is. To be, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but how imagine, how would God even handle that? How? And, of course, the idea is that, that in fact, we've lowered the bar, that most people think that just about all of us are going to make it anyway. It's really not that high. Because what we imagine is goodness and what we imagine expect is really way down here anyway. It's sort of like, you know, the complaint we have about a lot of people's ideas, even about sports. They don't like sport. They don't like our kids playing games where there's winners and losers. Everybody gets a trophy and we're all going to heaven. Oh, there's a few really nasty ones over here. We don't want them. But the rest of us, that's the way we think. Psalms is more complicated than it looks. It's clear that the righteous man is righteous because he cares for God. He fears God. He takes him and his word seriously. He trusts God. Wicked men are wicked because they will not do that. You see them in verse 1. They are the counsel of the wicked. There's no place for God or his word and having any weight in their calculations and their plans and their judgments. They live as sinners, offending God, but they probably don't think they are. They don't even aware of it. And they are scoffers. Perhaps many of them are those like Psalm 12, 4, that say, Though our tongues, we have power, our lips are our own, who can be our master? So here we have Psalm 
First half describing righteous people. Second half describing wicked people. The, the, the first half says that they, the righteous are like a tree planted by flowing streams. They're well watered. They bear fruit in their season. They're healthy fruit trees. Their leaves do not wither. And finally, not agricultural terms, they just prosper in whatever they do. And then he starts the second half and he says about the wicked, not so the wicked. Now, wait, 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 wait. Here we go again. What does he mean, not so the wicked? That the wicked will not prosper? But they do. Have you noticed? I mean, should we take Psalm 1 and say, well, let's find the, the wealthiest, most prosperous, the most affluent, the most successful, the most get-it-done kind of people, the most acclaimed people in our community, in our nation. Those will surely be the righteous ones. And the rest of us, is that what this psalm, is that how we're to understand this psalm? Absolutely not. So how do we say that all this blessing, prosperity comes to the righteous, not so the wicked? Do you have a problem with that? I have a problem with that. And I'm not alone. The other psalmist had a problem with that. Much of the rest of the Bible has a problem with that. And it talks about it a lot. Why do so many good people seem to often have a life that is so hard? And so many bad people, people have no interest in the things of God. Why do they seem to just go from success to success and blessing after blessings? The Bible and the psalms go out of their way to deal with that great moral problem. To deal with it. One of those famous, of course, is Psalm 73. And I want us to look there just real briefly. It's focusing exactly on this question. Why do evil people achieve so much success? And those who are righteous, many times they do not. God's people, then, like now, have to live in a real world. We don't live in a fantasy world. And following Jesus is not escaping into some make-believe world of existence that doesn't actually exist. This psalmist lived in the real world. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. By the way, just note in the Old Testament, the word fat means you're healthy. It means you're in good shape. <clears throat> They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. What's this month called? Pride? Anyway, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They are having one laugh after another. Life is good. Can you think of any examples of people like this? Famous people? Not so famous people? Very disturbing to the psalmist. The psalmist goes on, verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed and my hands and innocent. All day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Tried to live for the Lord and it's, it's one hard, difficult setback after another. And then he, he thinks about what he just said. And he said, If I had said, I will be able to speak, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, But when I came... But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. 
Truly, you set them in a slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They are nothingness. Later, he's going to just call the wicked like chaff, like the the hulk around the the, the grain. It's just nothing. It's just phantom. It's it's all empty. You see what the Bible's doing to us as it does it throughout it all. we, We often call this eschatology. You have to have a theology of eschatology, and we all do. We all, every Christian, non-Christian, everybody has a, has, a, has a philosophy. They have a theology about the end. We, we do it in much shorter terms. We do it with our children. By the way, next week's children, you come here and you come to the children's time, you're going to leave here with a bunch of candy. And very likely your parents are going to say, now if you eat all those candy bars right now, you're, it may seem like a good thing to you, but in an hour from now, you're going to be really sick to your stomach. You see, there's an end. Every sensible person knows that you can't just live for today. You can't just live for right now. Now, we know people who are fools like that. They only live for right now, and, and then the consequences are terrible later. But sooner or later, life has a way of, of making you say, you, I, this is stupid. You've got to have a little bit longer view of that. And so we say to our kids, you better start this study. Semester's beginning in the fall. Start studying, doing your work right then. Get your assignments done so you can, you, you'd really like to get a good grade at the end of the semester, right? You have a, a theology at the end. And you better prepare well now, and you better go to school now, and you better do these things because you're going to have to provide for a family one day. And so it's a theology at the end. Those guys that win Olympic gold this summer, not a one of them are going to imagine, boy, I did this in this last, in this last race. No, they did this a month ago, a year ago, the last 10 years ago, where they changed their eating habits and they worked and they worked and their friends said, you're nuts, and they kept focusing and focusing because they had an end in mind. You have to think down the road. Where is this path leading us? My question to you this morning is, what is the doctrine of ends for those who are prosperous What is the doctrine of ends for those who are prosperous but godless? And it's put very bluntly here in Psalm 1. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. When their lives are all done, no matter what acclamations they've received, no matter how great institutions they have added to or prospered or built, no matter whatever else anyone says about them, their lives come down to nothing. It's chaff. Chaff is the part of the corn that nobody is good for nothing. Even chickens won't eat the chaff. They're pretty stupid. Their life, it just, it adds up to nothing. He says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Everybody probably imagined, well, if I do, if there is a God, if there is a judge, then I know what I'm going to say when I stand before him. I have a good case to make, and I, I compare it to them and them and them and those people that go to church, compare, I'm going to be, one day they're going to stand before the judge and their whole case is going to collapse on top of them before a holy God. What a tragedy that will be. Now he says, sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Bible says the future for the people of God is to be a great family, a great assembly of people together with God, all of them down through the ages. I hope to be there. I hope you're going to be there. If we are there, you know why. 
Only God's grace. Only God's grace. That's the only way any of us make it. But we hope to be there. We hope to be a part of that. We should be there. But imagine coming to that day where all the, the things of God are coming to their, their perfection and you're left out. Jesus said to his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. Heaven really isn't made up of big pieces of, you know, property and houses set up. No, it's one big house. That's the picture of heaven. It's one big family. It's a great, great house. And there are many rooms, wonderful rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. All of God's people with all the blessings of God, all the problems and brokenness of this world gone forever. And all the future with him and a new heaven and a new earth. How wonderful it is and how awful it will be to be shut out of all of that. To be cut off from everything of God. To be cut off from every good thing you've ever wanted, enjoyed, thought you longed for. Because every good gift comes from God. Completely separated from all of that for eternity. A noted teacher, theologian, and scientist, some of you know him, Larry Hoffaditz, wrote about the biblical idea of light and darkness. He talks about how he would take his classroom of students and he would go to dark Missouri caves. And for those students, they experience what some of us have experienced at the bottom of caves. When you turn out all the lights, you experience maybe in the most profound way you've ever experienced it, absolute total darkness. And darkness is the picture of God's people, our people, including good people, but people who are living apart from God and his word and his son. Larry makes a lot of interesting points in this article, but included in them is a description of hell. And reminds us that hell is not only a place described in the Bible as unimaginable torment, but it is also a place of utter darkness. Cut off from every good thing totally forever. He quotes from Jude, For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Oh, how tragic to be cut off from the congregation of the righteous. To miss out on all the light and purpose and joy and work and glory and excellence that others will enjoy forever. Psalm reminds us about this ultimate doctrine of the end, where the road always ultimately leads. I have one more thing to point out to you about Psalm 1 that I think helps us understand Peter's words. We've noted out over and over, Psalm 1 is basically two parts. There's the part about the righteous, and there's the part about a wicked. And they, they're sort of parallel, running on these two tracks, one at the beginning, one at the end, except for this. The two halves don't match. They don't fit. They're not as parallel as we think they ought to be. He doesn't compare apples with apples. In the last half, he talks about the wicked, and he tells us about the end of the wicked. The tragedy of dying without God, without hope, where everything you've accumulated, everything you've got, all your fame, money, everything that you're so proud of, and it all just goes up in a vapor. It's nothing. Nothing but perishing, eternal judgment. Well, if that's what he describes about the wicked, we'd expect when he talks about the righteous that he's going to do pretty much the same thing. He's going to talk about the righteous. They come into their life, and there's Jesus welcoming us into our heavenly home, welcoming them to be with him forever and ever. But that's not it at all. That's not what he does. Description of the righteous is not the death of the righteous. What he described is their life right now. He doesn't talk about when we get to heaven. He talks about what they're doing now on this earth in these days. 
The righteous have to live in a fallen, broken, unjust world. But as they live in that world, they shine like diamonds. They prosper. They have fruitful lives revealing the glory and the excellence of God. People like to scoff and say, all oh, these Christians, they, you know, they keep people by making them think about heaven and offer them pie in the sky, make them satisfied with how difficult life is. Now, that's how they hold them. That's not what the Bible does. That's certainly not what Psalm 1 does. The second half of this psalm shows how the wicked will be judged. It tells us that the righteous will be accepted on the last day, but it describes the end of the wicked, the end of their lives. But the first half, it talks about the righteous only in terms of the life they live right now, and apparently that life is a great success story. Now, what does that mean? Maybe the prosperity, health, wealth of the crowd, maybe they're right. I don't think so. I don't think it means like some of us want to make it mean. Like some of you think it means. It is not a guaranteed easy life. Yet feel the tension here. God intends for you as a believer in Jesus Christ to be very successful. He means for you to live a life that is very significant. He means for you to have a life that's anything but chaff. He intends for you to prosper in the riches of God and the things that will matter now and for the eons to come. The world may not see it. They may not recognize it. They may not think much of it. But the Lord is working in your life. He's determined to work in your life so that one day you're going to stand before him and he will say by his grace and his power in you all the things that Peter is talking about, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the blessing he intends. I know most of us, we say, well, we live in a small place, small corner of the world, little narrow. What is it? What does my life matters? And the circumstances, the environment we live in is rough and seems some days to get rougher. But I'm telling you that if you are in Christ seeking him, when the last story of your life is done, it will be very obvious you are able by the power and grace of God to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in seasons and a leaf does not wither and all he does, he proffers. The first people who read this psalm lived in a place that was arid, was desert-like. They knew about trees that were like this, but they were, had to be near the water. My friend, and no matter how arid and dry and desert-like and wilderness-like the circumstances of your life may seem right now, I'm telling you there's living water in Jesus Christ that's available for you. You can blossom, you can bloom, and you can be prosperous in Him. So how do you begin that journey? You begin that journey by doing what He says in verse 1. Makes clear that the righteous, first of all, are willing to be a minority. The righteous is always described as one person, one man, and the the wicked are always described as a plurality. So there's one person against the counsel of the wicked. There's one alone who refuses to go the way of the sinners. And there's one alone who withstands the mockings and laughters of the scoffers. That is to say, when you follow Christ, you turn from self and sin, and you turn from the world and all of its ideas. And you say, Jesus, you're Lord, your word is Lord, and I'm going to order my life by your counsel and your word. It's called Repentance. It's called from turning and trusting yourself. Saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. Young people, some of you have had some great experiences in the last few weeks in our church. Sports camp and sport youth camp. And some of you on this, perhaps even on this mission trip. Others of you have had marvelous experiences. For some of you, maybe just now, beginning some of your first real personal experiences in a walk. That's your walk, your life, your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, you're going to have to bring it back and live in a real world, though. You don't always get to be at camp or on mission trips. You're going to have to deal with scoffers and people are going to tell you things very, very differently. And you're going to have to stand in the Word of God and delight in His Word and His focus on His Word. 
and walk with him by faith, trusting what Jesus did for you at a cross, but he died in your place. You see what this, what, what Peter's describing, what the psalmist is describing here, particularly one and two, is the miracle of being born again, of being made a new person in Jesus Christ. It's not saying, oh, I'm going to be a Christian, so now I'm going to work real hard and be a good boy. I'm going to be a Christian now. I'm going to be a really good girl. And I'm going to work harder than I ever. That's not what it's about. It's falling in faith and trust and love to the Lord Jesus Christ and nurturing that relationship, focusing on that, and walking in the power of that every day. It's only then that we become like trees planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit. It's only then that we know the grace and peace is multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. It's only then that we feed upon him, we hear him and love him, because of course we want to hear what he has to say, that his divine power grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him to all who are called to his own glory and excellence. This is no small, cheap, faddish kind of living. His life is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And in that he will grant us precious and great promises. Some of you have walked with him a long time. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Can I hear an amen? Amen. It's the truth. It's the truth. Walk with him. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the privilege of serving you this morning. Thank you for your calling in our life. Father, I would pray right now for any boy or girl, any adult, any senior adult, anyone hearing my voice. Lord, as you've been speaking to them, help them to understand what it means to be made righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, of course, you mean to make our lives very different, but it starts and it ends and it's built on knowing you. Help us to know you and trust you and follow you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.